Hello and welcome to the Gig Colony Project's first podcast. We are going to do these podcasts regularly, speaking to some of Europe's leading trade union activists, leading gig economy researchers, gig economy workers, uh, to understand, uh, find out more uh, about what's going on with the gig economy all across Europe. If you don't know already, the Gig Economy Project is a project of the Brave New, New Europe website. Um, and we seek to build a network of people across Europe, of researchers, organisers, workers, um, about the gig economy, about what's going on in the gig economy, and about gig economy struggles and to advance the, the cause of, of gig economy workers. So I hope you enjoy this first podcast, which we recorded with Alex Marshall last week uh, on the 15th of January. Okay, I'm joined here by Alex Marshall, who is president of the IWGB, which is the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain. Uh, the IWGB is one of the main unions for organising gig workers in the UK. Um, it's a new union. Uh, it was set up. When was it set up, Alex? Tell me. So I think we're, we're coming up to about 10 years old. Um, I should probably know that straight off the bat. but um, it's, yeah. it's definitely new anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's still like eight, eight, nine years old kind of thing, you know, still very much in its infancy compared to other unions. So Alex was, uh, was a delivery courier until he became president of the IWGB for eight years. Am I right yeah, saying? Eight years eight in years London. And he must, he must, you must be one of the, the first delivery couriers to be a president of a union, I suspect. That's, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't expect I, you to know that, but I, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing that's... I, I all these questions that I'm suddenly realising I should know more. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's start off with, with your, you know, eventful 2020 then, because it started with the pandemic, obviously, and you were a courier during the pandemic for the doctor's laboratory um, in London. And that was, we did an interview, the Gig Economy Project did an interview with you then, and that was, you know, quite an experience because... But what two months into the pandemic, the company then sacked you and another nine couriers, union organisers, sort of a blatant attack on the union. And then yeah. by November, you became president of the union. So you had quite a quite a, a an exciting year. What what was what was twenty twenty like then? It must have been quite yeah, a transition. I mean, my, my my journey into union organising, as you mentioned, you know, as a career. Uh, with someone not not with a trade union background I sort of you know fell into it uh, through kind of being exploited through the gig economy I, I was sort of signposted to trade unions as I sort of exhausted all the options individually to try and improve my sort of terms and conditions that I was working at various different career companies um, in London I ended up at a company called the doctor's laboratory um, where we were ferrying sort of specimens to and from hospitals and um, and within this place, it was 150 workers. We managed to organise. We got trade union recognition there, one of the first recognition agreements. I think it is the first recognition agreement in the gig economy in the UK at the doctor's laboratory. Um, we managed to win worker status. So all these couriers who for 20, 25 years had never had paid holidays, never had a pay rise. Uh, we managed to get these people paid holidays, pensions, you know, completely transformed the way that these people were operating. Um, and obviously while this was going on, I was irritating the hell out of the CEO and all the sort of management at the company. So I wasn't their favorite character. And then, you know, 2020 kicked in and, you know, by March, um, as a courier, we started to see a few of these COVID specimens. And I think we were slightly more 
aware of this evolving situation um, than, than a lot of people because we were thinking, you know, started to see these yellow specimens coming in, which had a big yellow sticker saying COVID-19 mm-hmm. and started to see more and more of them. So we were very aware that this thing was starting to spread. And then when lockdown kicked in, you know, I, I continued doing my job. I was one of the few people whose life still resembled some form of normality. I was still going out every day, still picking up specimens. The specimens weren't so much your routine ones of blood and other other things. They were more and more COVID specimens going into wards, picking them up, uh, going into drive throughs picking them up. Um, and my company, they saw this as an opportunity um, they used the pandemic as a smokescreen to usher out some of the most active trade union members in the company. They said that they couldn't afford to keep us on and they needed more flexible workers who were on motorbikes um, at a time when the whole country and the whole world were trying to get greener and greener to tackle climate change. They were using this as an excuse um, and also the fact they couldn't afford it. And this is a company that was getting private contracts from you know, the Premier League, from Apple, Burberry all these other places that were like desperately trying to get testing done so they could keep their staff and keep things running. So this is a company that was booming um, that said they couldn't afford to keep us on. And um, so, yeah, I think it was May the 1st on, on the workers, the biggest workers day that we were told we were going to be made redundant. Mm-hmm. And that launched into a huge campaign to save the TDL 10, um, which went on for a month. Um, unfortunately, at the end of it, we weren't successful but I don't know how you can measure success. Yeah, we lost our jobs, but we completely transformed that workplace. And within that 30 days, um, this campaign escalated to, you know, thousands of people sending letters of solidarity and complaining to the CEO with the clients or finding out about that, that they, it escalated to a picket line happening outside the headquarters of, of TDL, the doctor's lab, which is in Sydney, we managed to organise a picket line outside the HQ on the other side of the world. Um, and yeah, they might have got rid of us, but it's only for now. And we still have a court case that's happening in October um, over trade union detriment and whistleblowing, which we think is pretty pretty blatant. But we know how you know the courts can work and how a little trade union taking on a, a multi-million pound company, how people can lawyer up and all this kind of thing. But I'm, I'm still optimistic of some form of justice. But as I said as well, you know, the justice that we've won under that one roof and that we've transformed the workplace and that that can be used as a benchmark to help us organise. And it's already helped me recruit so many more people mm-hmm. to bring them on board and to give them hope that, you know, that in itself is a huge victory. And um, this is this is collateral and it has hurt people. But, you know, I try and balance things out. So off the back of that, I was um, working towards the tribunal and all sorts of stuff. And then yeah, in, in November, I got elected as the president of the IWGB. Um, I'm still trying to work out if I've fallen on my feet or fallen on my ass because uh, <laughs> taking over as a president um, of a trade union when there's been a switch in leadership is going to be pretty hard anytime, you know, to get people to get used to it, to get used to the dynamics, to do that during a pandemic when, you know, so many workers are you know, experiencing a similar thing to me, you know, all sorts of redundancies going on. Um, the big companies really using the pandemic to drive down wages. Um, you know, you've seen the likes of delivery Uber uh, massively overhire, flooding cities, aggressively expanding to try and, you know, meet the demand, you know, accelerating by two, three years, but people seeing their wages going down. 
Um, they're seeing business boom while workers are seeing their conditions and pay drop. Um, so it's been slightly stressful to take over, but it's it's been an absolutely incredible experience. I'm, I'm, it's an absolute privilege to kind of take on um, such a big role at a union that is, is really trailblazing and is really empowering workers, representing such precarious workers. And as I said, giving them hope and, you know, really making them realise that things don't have to be how they are. Um, and, you know, tackling a system that's set up to exploit so many precarious workers, so many migrant workers mm-hmm. and, and, and being part of like turning this tide. So it's an absolute privilege. But like I said, it's um, it's a roller coaster. I mean, people have found 2020 pretty hard. I think mine's been uh, slightly eventful. I wouldn't want to compare it to anyone else's because I know everyone's had a turbulent time as well. But that's been my, my 2020 in a nutshell. And obviously, uh, you've been a rank and file union activist for a long time now. Um, do you think that's important that leaders of unions uh, come from the base and know the experience of the modern workplace, you know, the experience of the gig economy? I mean, there can't be many union leaders who have been part of what for these big, uh, these big digital platform companies, you know, and, this, and worked in this model, this gig economy model of working. Do you think that's important that as there's kind of a new generation of union, trade union leadership, that that's kind of reflected that experience? I mean, I think it's, it's definitely important. I, I don't think it's necessarily essential. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it is, it's hugely helpful when I'm organising that I've, I've had that journey, that I've had that experience, you know, and especially when you're trying to talk to people and, and, and trying to get them to take a leap of faith. The fact that I've had to take that leap of faith before and, you know, really trust my instincts really trust my sense that uh, for justice, you know, being able to see right and wrong and just and just driving for it. You know, the fact that I've had to do that in the past does make it easier to have these conversations with, you know, private hire drivers or foster care workers or, you know, whoever it is that I'm having to approach and convince the fact that I've lived that experience. Um, it definitely does help. And it, it gives me confidence to have these discussions, whereas, you know, if you've only read about it in a book or you've only like, you know, heard about it or whatever it is. Yeah. There is an element of that, that slight detachment, but I'd never put that down, you know, because I think what you, the most essential things you need to have is, is that desire and that passion for that justice Mm -hmm. and to be able to help the workers and, you know, different, different approaches work with different people. Mm -hmm. You know, my sort of rough and ready approach might work with workers in the gig economy who have to be incredibly aggressive um, because these billionaire companies just completely slam the door in their faces. So we have to be creative. We have to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. But in other workplaces, this, this might not work as well. Mm-hmm. So there might be a different form of, of leadership that might work there. But what I'm finding at the IWGB is that, you know, myself and Henry, who's the, the new general secretary, who, you know, just, just a decade ago or less than a decade ago, he was a cleaner um, working in, you know, one of the universities in London. And, I think the coupling of us together, it works really well because we, we know w- where we've come from and we know the raw experience of the workers and we can really um, feel their pain because mm-hmm. we've been there. And, you know, our, our desire to organise and our desire for justice isn't one that's come out of, you know, this would be an interesting thing to get into. It, it's come from necessity to mm-hmm. survive, you know, organizing was a survival thing so I could keep doing the job that I wanted to do but I couldn't pay my bills mm-hmm. and it's exactly the same with Henry and and you know we dragged so many people with us to do that and we we had incredible victories along the way and I think that's definitely like the fuel to our fires 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're still learning so much from, from other people, from academics, from, you know, other workers, from, from people from completely different fields. You know, it's not like we're like, we have this idea yeah. and we put our blinkers on. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, it's an incredibly important part of my journey. Mm-hmm. And it does give me confidence and it does give me faith. And, and it helps me drive on and, and talk to workers. The IWGV is quite a it's quite a remarkable union. It is mainly low paid workers that are that are members. I think I'm right in, in saying um, a lot of migrant workers as well that are members. What is the what is the organising model of the IWGV? What what is the the kind of the way you what can you imagine? Other countries in Europe are thinking: Could we set up a, a new union like the IWGV? What would you say is the kind of the model of, that you guys have? So, I mean, I think the, the IWGB, some of the um, areas in which we're organising, you know, the cleaners, the private hire drivers, the, um, the couriers, you know, the delivery workers, these are areas that, you know, in the past were thought of as unorganisable. And that's why it was almost like a, I wouldn't want to say gap in the market, but it was definitely a gap in the sort of trade union movement where things weren't really happening. And the IWGB kind of slipped into these positions and not only started organising, but started getting some really big victories, you know, Um, ending outsourcing, you know, getting recognition agreements in the gig economy. Like these are absolutely huge. And, you know, they put to shame a lot of, you know, the bigger unions that have been organising in other industries and that we've not only done that in places that people thought you couldn't organise, but we've done that in a way where we've got these huge victories as well. And we're building density and the union's growing on a week by week basis. But in terms of like what the model is, I guess it is sort of harping back to what I was saying earlier, that it is that need to be radical and it is that need to be aggressive. It's that need for direct action. Um, we, do, we do a lot of casework, but a lot of what we have to do as well is kind of empowering members. It's kind of, you know, enlightening them as to, you know, what their rights are. Um, what they can do in the workplace and all these kind of things that I guess I guess with the IWGB we, we start from a little bit further back than a lot of members because we do have these migrant workers that you know might not be from the UK or you know their their language isn't English isn't their their first language so we have to like really get in there and and sort of you know explain to them that they can you know, unite and they can win and they don't just have to accept, you know, these really low um, paying conditions that they're having to sort of, you know, endure. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, I, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of the model. I mean, as, as the union's grown, it's become more and more eclectic with the people we represent. We now have yoga teachers, um, as I mentioned, foster care workers, uh, game workers, uh, charity workers branch. It's, you know, and we've, we've got other branches starting to form in our, our, our holding branches. We're attracting people from different different industries. But, you know, the common theme in any trade union is, is exploitation. So there's always that solidarity between the branches. But there, there is still that common theme with a lot of the branches of precarity of work, of bogus employment um, status. You know, people being told they're self-employed when they're taking less days off a year than an employee. Um, so there are there are definitely common themes. Um, we've definitely organised in areas that have like little to no trade union mm-hmm. representation. Um, but what we're seeing more and more is is people coming from fields where there is conventional trade unions maybe already organising there, but they're seeing that we're doing more, and they're attracted to that with the direct action and that kind of no holding back and just mm-hmm. going 
going going for glory and going for what people deserve. Yeah, and in terms of the gig economy specifically, I, I think about one in ten workers in the UK now are in the, are in the gig economy. Um, obviously, internationally, there's been I don't know how to put it. Like, there's been different things happening. So, in in California, with Proposition Twenty Two, where you know Uber and Lyft, these big uh, platform companies, spent a record amount of money to force through this referendum victory. That was a kind of blow. On the other hand, you see in, in New York, for example, um, they've forced them, uh, Uber to actually start employing uh, workers on proper contracts. Uh, so it's, I don't know what you think about the kind of where the gig, where you think the gig economy is going, you know, what direction, because it's obviously it's quite a new thing still. Is evolving in terms of there's lots of court cases going on in many countries, um, you know, challenging these companies in terms of the legal the legal obligations. What what sense do you get about where where the gig economy is is heading? So I mean, like for, for me, it's it's quite important to stress that you know in the UK or as the IWGB or just me personally, you know, we're not anti gig economy. Mm-hmm. We're anti the way this sort of mode of working has been utilized to kind of strip workers of rights you know we we don't agree that flexibility has to come hand in hand with with zero rights you know Mm -hmm. we we believe that it's the way that people are you know utilized by companies the level of like stringent control um all these kind of things that mean yeah these people aren't self independent contractors they're actually workers And, and in the uk we have this middle classification of worker where you know you remain self employed but you do get, you know, pension, you get uh, minimum wage, you mm-hmm. get paid holiday. And that there are those securities that you can have. So you can kind of have that middle ground. And what we're kind of against here is that basically what happened was these companies sort of started up and it's almost like they blindsided governments, regulators, all sorts of stuff, you know, and, and people are like, oh, it's just this little thing that's kind of happening. And, and, mm-hmm. and they didn't regulate it in time and what happened was these companies boomed they absolutely skyrocketed and it's like somehow they managed to do that without the government or anyone like picking up on it and now they've become so powerful that you know we're seeing stuff like in in california where even even like you know if there are things passed in court and these huge court victories they're still managing to spend Mm. enough money to bend the rules Mm. to suit them to bend the rules to get workers to shoot themselves in the foot and sell off rights that they've they've won um and and that's kind of what i'm against is the fact that these companies almost seem to be more powerful and what we're seeing kind of around europe and around the world is drivers and and couriers and and other workers within the gig economy at different stages of their battles and and taking on different um ways of taking on the gig economy so you've got places taking on through the courts in certain places you know you've got places like spain and Italy and France, where you're seeing a lot of direct action. Um, you know, it's the same same here in the UK. We've had loads of boycotts of um, of restaurants, and we've had like strikes popping off all over the UK, like running alongside like you know tribunals and all sorts of stuff like that. But I guess the issue is, is as I've mentioned, they've just become so powerful that you know if you if you go up against them in court, they quite often have the money to make huge settlements that just kills kills these big landmark cases in the water or 
you know, they, they bring in things like Proc 22 that just sort of completely overturns things as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking, uh, you know, and I think the IWGB and, and part of this new leadership is that we can't rely on governments and we can't rely on, on, on tribunals that this change and the way that we can change the complexion of the gig economy to one that we think the workers can actually get a good wage and, mm-hmm. and support their families on and get some sort of stability is going to be through direct action. Mm-hmm. Is going to be through taking action on the streets, also you know targeting investors um, and using this kind of nutcracker technique to put pressure on these huge companies from all angles until they start giving the workers what they want. And the worst thing is the workers aren't even asking for that much. Mm-hmm. You know, asking for holiday pay and basic rights mm-hmm. that were actually brought in to protect you know workers' physical and mental safety. And that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting to like go against exploitation. We're fighting for to go against, you know, devices used by capitalism that we were seeing, you know, written about by Steinbeck like 70, 80 years ago mm-hmm. when they were like flooding fruit picking places and driving down the cost of, you know, labor. We're seeing the same thing happen 80 years later. And that's what we're fighting against. You know, that the gig economy seems to have spawned this next level of exploitation mm. that's completely unregulated, that has the people at the top oversupplying an unknown demand. And, you know, the effect of it is devastating. Mm. It's, it's people working 60, 70 hour weeks and, and they're still on benefits. One of people. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, no, sorry, an option. One of the. One of the, the, the victories you've had uh, last year was about the health and safety of gig workers uh, in, in a, a court, court verdict in November, I think I'm right in saying. Um, yeah. Now, that came as a result of the pandemic and the situation that people were experiencing, as you say, you know, working in unsafe conditions during the pandemic. You're back in lockdown now uh, in the UK. Um, what can you say about that? Is, is the court verdict is it actually going to lead to any any change? You know, for, for for gig workers in terms of health and safety and those issues. So I guess with that, I mean, the the, the victory was that you know these these rights should be extended to um, to workers, not just to employees. Yeah. So it's you know it's it's it's, it's a huge victory. You know, the likes of Uber workers that you know health and safety that you can. The, the, the two main things of this victory was the right to PPE. So it means that, you know, mm. these multi-million pound companies like Uber, Deliveroo, Just Eat, it's not on the worker to be supplying themselves with PPE. It's on these multi-million pound companies to make sure that their workers are getting the appropriate PPE to keep themselves safe. The other thing was that they could also refuse to do work if it's unsafe. So we're talking about, you know, Uber drivers, who would be picking up a passenger who'd be coughing away yeah. and would be too scared to say no to letting them into their car because they're worried about the negative rating, they're worried about all of these things which could result in them losing the job. But this meant that they can now exercise the right to refuse something and the reason for refusing it would be because you know there was a genuine risk uh, to my health and safety. Um, so yeah, it's, it's massive that these, these rights have been extended to workers, it's crazy that these weren't, you know, extended to workers in the first place, that you can't actually, you know, that, that the responsibility of, you know, securing PPE was left to a low-paid, precarious worker rather than the multi-million pound company that they were working for. Um, in terms of enforcement, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 the same old. It's you know that they can pass these huge rules in court, um, that they'll just kind of sit there. And then it's kind of up to the unions and the workers to organise to make sure that they're actually being enforced because the governments aren't going around and making sure that these companies are, you know, making sure everyone's got PPE and all sorts of stuff. You're seeing people maybe getting fined on this, you know, or getting told off for entering a shop without a mask, but it's not because the company hasn't got them enough masks. It's because the worker hasn't, hasn't managed to get one. So the onus seems very much still on the workers and I think it is still left to the trade unions and everyone to kind of campaign and organize and make sure that these rules are being enforced because it seems like you know even if laws are passed um the multi-million pound companies still get away scot-free unless you really show them up for doing so mm-hmm. and of course the governments don't have access to the algorithms they don't know on what basis these companies are making decisions you know the recent court case in Bologna uh, where they said, where they proved that, you know, workers had been punished for taking sick, for going off sick from work in terms of being moved down the algorithm, uh, for taking strike action, moved down the algorithm in terms of, uh, I, think, I think it was delivery. Um, what, what do you think about that issue? You know, the, 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 I think, the yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, I think it's really interesting. Um, I, I definitely want to want to talk to them more about that because I think we have similar cases here. Mm. I think, you know, Deliveroo and as soon as they cottoned on that the people were onto them, they completely changed things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, over here, the way Deliveroo, Uber uh, operate, they, they don't have a lot of these things now where it's all kind of free login and, you know, we they're, they're still deliberately set up in an opaque way. That mm. means you just have no idea how jobs are being allocated. But there is still Stuart, which is um, Stuart's owned by like DHL. and Well, it's a partner of, of DHL and it's owned by Geopost. Um, I think it operates in like France. I think it's, it's in Spain. It's in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but they still have like a ranking system called CPS, which you get like a rating. And, you know, you're, you're more or less likely to get shifts. You're more or less likely to get jobs, depending on this ranking system. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to explore that because, yeah, if you miss a day's work because you're sick or you're knocked off your bike, um, yeah, you, your, your rating can go down. Mm-hmm. But also we've heard when people have taken like wildcat action and they're trying to do boycotts, they've had people who are who are working on shift who were scared to take strike action because they think they can get off-boarded or that their rating can go down, which can lead to being fired. Um, so it's something that we definitely could explore with some of these companies that, you know, haven't sneakily gone behind closed doors and quickly changed things. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the way these companies operate, they're, they're so opaque. There's mm-hmm. just no knowing how jobs are given, how routes are found, like all sorts of stuff like that. They just set themselves up in a way that workers are just left so confused, even when they lose their job. They're just left there scratching their heads thinking, you know, it's, it's Kafkaesque. You, you literally just end up admitting defeat because you just can't even get to someone who'll explain why you've been terminated. Um, yeah. There, there was a strike, uh, I think, yesterday or the day before yesterday in Stuart, Stuart Delivery uh, in Plymouth, if I'm right in saying, right? the, the IWGB had a strike there. Can you tell us about what, what, what was that about? So, yeah, I mean, our, our, our riders down in Plymouth, I mean, that one wasn't a completely official IWGB. We've, we've got some members down in Plymouth who are, who are certainly 
part of the driving force of sort of self-organizing there. But um, what's happened in, in, you know, Plymouth is a microcosm of what's going on in every city and town all over the whole of the UK that, you know, their, their area, they started to get frustrated because they, you know, as, as more and more people are, are resorting to takeaways to home delivery, you'd expect these delivery drivers to be quids in, to be sort of, you know, finally mm. receiving a bit of an uplift after the shift that they've put in. But what these guys are seeing is that their pay has either stayed the same or decreased because the companies are flooding cities with more and more riders. Mm. So these guys down in Plymouth um, obviously got pretty disgruntled. They raised it with an area manager and the area manager turned around to them and said, oh, we've seen a 50% increase in business. These guys said, you know, why haven't I seen a 50% increase in my money? Because uh, I could more than handle more jobs a day. And the manager said, oh, so we, we've decided to keep bringing people on. And you, you'll see that your pay has, has, has not really changed. Um, and we've decided that in, in January and February, there might be more work as well, but we're not quite sure. So we've decided to hire a whole load more people. And these guys were just like, enough is enough. You know, you should consult us. You should talk to us. Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And they all down tools for the day. And I think it had a devastating effect on, on Stuart down in Plymouth, like McDonald's, KFC, some of their biggest restaurants just had to close the doors to delivery because they didn't have it. And it's, it's just great to see these, these workers realising that without their workforce, these guys are nothing more than an app. Mm-hmm. And you know, the sooner the more and more riders kind of wake up to this, that's when these guys know that they're really in trouble. But I think there'll definitely be more to come down in Plymouth. Um, so yeah, that, I, that, that, that I guess this is where you know regulation has to come in because <clears throat> if companies can just oversupply labour to force down the, uh, the the wages they have to pay effectively, um, you know, in a situation of a recession, which we're in, you know, UK is in one of the biggest recessions of any country in, in Europe. Force is going to force people to go out to look for work. It's uh, it's going to create a desperate situation, isn't it? Whereby wages get pushed down and down more and more people are, are coming in to try to make a little bit of money however they can uh and you know must be well below minimum wage that these wages are being forced down to now yeah i mean like, like you said it, it's, it's crying out for regulation mm. but you know these companies are just licking their lips you yeah. know something like a, something like a pandemic it's absolutely perfect for them yeah. to you know prey on people's desperation they do that anyway they were doing that before the pandemic you know they have a model where they'll offer a low price for a job and it will get rejected and rejected and rejected until someone's desperate enough to accept you know two quid to go however far at whatever time of night into a dangerous place you know so you've already got people they're already preying on people's desperation throw a pandemic in there where people are desperate for work and who are desperately trying to make ends meet and they're just driving down the cost of labor. They're flooding cities with places. I mean, recently, I think it was back in, I think it was like October, maybe November, that Deliveroo sort of did this big song and dance about pitting 15,000 new riders on the road. And oh yeah, you know, business is booming. We're pitting 15,000 new riders on the road. We're creating 15,000 new jobs. That would cost Deliveroo nothing to do it you know all it means there's going to be more people standing around work waiting for work it's it doesn't mean anything to them it costs them zero 
but it looks like they're booming. And especially as they're approaching their IPO, they want to be giving off the impression that they're absolutely booming, that they're creating these incredible jobs and, and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is the perfect storm for these companies just to aggressively expand, to keep preying on people's desperation, to keep driving down the cost of labor. And you talk to drivers on the street and they almost accept the fact that, you know, they're getting paid £2.50 for a job. It will be sub £2 for a job that can take you 40 minutes within six months time because they can just see they can see straight through these companies they might try and set themselves up in a way that's opaque but they can see straight through them and they know that they're trying to drive it down and this works well for us i mean our membership has increased 44 percent um in the careers branch since march last year well, but that's been, that's been coupled with you know the driving down of wages but also a huge spike in in sort of unjust terminations and that's why back in November last year, we launched the Clapton Scrap campaign mm -hmm. where it's the idea that these guys, you know, all these key workers were clapped in the UK from like March all the way through the summer, but they were still being, you know, subjected to the same exploitative conditions and all this kind of stuff in, in work. And they're still being like, terminated with no reason whatsoever. We're hearing people who are being terminated for taking too long in a job, that can be down to road closures. That can be done down to being knocked off your bike. You know, they're given no chance to appeal, no chance for, you know, to have representation. They just, they get a text and that's it. They've lost their livelihood and they're just there scrambling, desperate for answers. Mm -hmm. And that's why we launched this campaign to try and get a fair, a fair process, representation and an appeal system put in place um, that's gathering more and more momentum. We've had a load of politicians support it. Um, we're gathering more and more momentum. We're going to be ramping it up this year, hopefully heading into more direct action that will be around this campaign, but also around the IPO to really show the investors that if you're going to be investing in delivery, they need to be more ethical. Um, otherwise, you're going to be facing a hell of a lot of direct action um, based around your, your, your investment. And I think if, if people want to support that campaign, there's a, there's a petition, isn't there? They can, they can sign on the... IWGB website on the on the Twitter. Uh, yes, we, we, we've got a pledge that you can sign up to that, you know, if you're a supporter, you can um, keep up to date with all sorts of ways that you can be supporting the action. Or if you're a courier, you can find out more. You can join the IWGB and you can mm -hmm. get stuck in. We also have a, a poster that people can be sticking in their window mm -hmm. um, that says, you know, you deserve more than a round of applause, which is all these key workers have had so far. Um, you can also write, if you're in the UK, to your, your MP and get them to put their name on this motion that we put through Parliament that has just under 70 MPs have signed up to demand a fair process for app-based workers. Um, there's all sorts of ways that you can get involved. So you can follow us on online. And uh, as I said, you know, 2021, 2020 was hard for a lot of people. We're going to make 2021 a hell of a lot harder for these companies. So excellent <laughs> okay the final thing alex is i know um i know from reading that wgb's work from from you know checking what you guys are saying he's a very interested in what's going on internationally and obviously the gig economy project that's kind of why we exist is to highlight different struggles internationally to connect up uh what's happening in different in different countries do you think that's that's important that there's a you know, a movement of gig workers internationally who are learning from each other 
listening to each other, and, you know, taking the best ideas from each other's struggles. Do you think that's something that's important for the for the kind of to generate this movement uh, within the gig economy of, of organizers and uh, you know and struggle going forward? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, these 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 companies. I mean, the way that they they operate is they capitalize on the fact that you know they're, they're working in industries where you're incredibly isolated it's a completely fractured there's no finite workplace you know that you, you go out you log on you cycle around you might see a couple of other people you know it's not like factories and stuff like that where you had a workplace where you're going in and out of every day you know and what we need to do as couriers whether it's just in the uk or if it's all around the world as well is we're creating these kind of finite workplaces whether they're whatsapp groups whether they're the gig economy you know project where all this information's in the same place where people can go to understand this struggle is worldwide and um, that we can start organizing that we can start bouncing ideas and it's all about that worker unity and it is it's so important for it to be happening all over the world i mean at, at the moment there's different fights as i said there's skirmishes going on all over the world, you know, whether it's it's over in Brazil, whether it's, you know, in, in Spain or Italy or, you know, the USA, there's, there's all these things going on. And it's all about, it's all, you know, under the umbrella of exploitation. It's under the umbrella of, you know, pushing for better paying conditions. And it's, it's how we can coordinate the struggle to really hit these companies. And only then will we be able to kind of get lasting change and kind of completely overhaul a system that at the moment is only leading towards you know the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer but it's one that you know arguably could work for the workers you know the flexibility the the being out there doing an essential job that's been proven to be essential over the pandemic that we always knew was essential but we never really had the platform to say that um and yeah i think you know coordinated action worldwide is how we're going to hit these companies i think they know it's it's coming um i think we're getting there i think there's incredible momentum um i think there's great solidarity growing between different networks different unions all of this kind of stuff and it's, it's building nicely and i am incredibly optimistic that we will get change and that we will make this a more sustainable secure place for workers to be doing the damn good job that they do so that was alex marshall talking to us last week um, if you would like to get involved in the Gay Economy Project, we are always keen to hear from people across Europe and involved in the gay economy. You can reach us on our Twitter at project under slash gig, or you can contact me directly and Ben Ray, the coordinator of the project, at ben.ray at hotmail.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening.